Welcome to week five, lesson four of Revealed Our Study in Isaiah. This week we looked at several passages that had key phrases that had to do with the vineyard and the vine dresser. Our Isaiah passage was chapter five, the first seven verses, and we looked in the New Testament at John 15, one through eight. I wanna expand that John 15 passage, go before it and after it to get hopefully a deeper understanding of God as our vine dresser. Pray with me. Here we are, Lord. We are waiting, wanting, and willing to hear from you, and we open ourselves to the gift of your word and are depending on your spirit to teach us even now. Amen. Did you know that all four Gospels include Jesus' picture of the vine and the branches? Jesus really wants us to know God as the vine dresser. Now, I like grapes, red and green, especially seedless grapes. I've walked through beautiful vineyards in Austria and Italy and Israel and even gone to a wedding here at our local vineyard on 38, but I am no vine dresser. I'm not even a gardener. And might I recommend two books to you, Bruce Wilkinson's book, Secrets of the Vine, and then Andrew Murray's book, The True Vine, as resources that might be helpful to you if you want to learn, study more about this. I'll be sharing some from these books as well as from other vineyard experts. Now we read John 15. In context, let's look at the setup. What happened right before this? Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. They've been eating the Last Supper, and conversing. Jesus has washed their feet. Jesus has told them, one of you will betray me. Jesus has told Peter that he will deny him. And basically, Jesus is hours from his death. And we read in John 14, Jesus says, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. Do you see the connection between obedience and love? Don't miss it. In between the I am statement Jesus then makes, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener, is sandwiched actually between this obedience and love. And now we're going to go to the end of our John 15 passage and you're going to see the same thing, obedience and love. Jesus is still speaking. I've loved you even as the father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So there it is, couched between these truths of obedience and love, Jesus takes the disciples out of the room and into the night, I think for a field trip, an object lesson, the ultimate teacher making the most of every teachable moment. Perhaps as they left the upper room, they saw a vineyard. Maybe that's what prompts Jesus to say, I am the true vine. Maybe he was just using the familiar. Did you know that the two major occupations for the ancient Hebrews were shepherding a flock and working the land? And of all the agricultural forms in the eastern lands, a vineyard is both the most costly and the most troublesome. And God chooses the vineyard to express and represent himself and his people. Vineyards 101, all four of these traits are in our Isaiah passage this week. A fence, a watchtower, stones and rows, and wine press and vat. The vineyards required a permanent fence to keep out predators. The watchtower was there 
to provide protection from thieves. The large stones were actually cleared and gathered and then put into rows beside the plants. And in Israel, the vines were then draped over or upon these rows to safeguard the fruit from the damp ground. The vineyards had their own wine presses and vats because exporting the fruit, the fruit was way too precious for that and could easily get bruised. So God uses a vineyard to describe his people in the many ways he meticulously cares for us. He sets a guard around us. He stands high above us. He's the stone on which we can fall, and he was crushed for our iniquities. As I read the first 10 verses of John 15, please look up from your Bibles and see the vineyard. Jesus said, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit." For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I've loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Who's who and what's what? Well, Jesus is the vine. You know, if you didn't grow up in wine country, you might think that the vine is the long trailing limb that sprawls along the trellis. And actually, it's the trunk of the plant that grows out of the ground. And vineyards traditionally keep it about waist high, 36 to 42 inches from the ground up. And the vine ends in this large gnarl, and that's where the branches grow in either direction along the trellis. Now the father is the gardener. The gardener is the vine dresser. King James uses the word husbandman. He's the keeper of the vineyard. You and I, we're the branches. We are the focus of the vine dresser's efforts. Why? Because that's where the grapes come from. The vines produce the fruit. The branches produce the fruit. They're tied up to the trellis, propped up with sticks. This is all to let air circulate around them, to provide the maximum amount of sunshine for them, to allow full access for the vine dresser to tend them. The vine dresser cultivates each branch so that it will bear as much fruit as is possible. Note the individual attention there. The vine dresser's not standing on the hilltop looking over his vineyard. Neither is he looking down the row at his vineyard. It is branch by branch. And the fruit, our key passage in the Old Testament of Isaiah this week, talks about the fruit of justice and righteousness. Did you know of the 27 books in the New Testament, 15 of them mention different kinds of fruit we are to have in our lives. Before we talk about that, I want to state the obvious. Vines bear fruit for others to enjoy, and it brings glory, if you will, to the vine dresser or the gardener. So as we go through some of these fruits, I want you to be noticing ways fruit nourishes others. So here are some of the fruits from the New Testament. I only chose seven. 
The fruit of righteousness, again, we, uh, talked, we read about it in Isaiah, but it's also in the New Testament in James. There's the fruit of repentance, of the spirit, of our lips, of answered prayer, of lost souls, of our deeds. For time's sake, we're going to look at three of these more closely. First, the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, and 23, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Fruit isn't something you can manufacture. Fruit happens when you are abiding. It's similar to the example of the sun and the moon. The moon does not rise at night and say, tonight I will shine brightly to light the night. The moon shines simply because of the way it was created and its relationship to the sun. The moon does not generate light on its own. Reflection is natural for the moon because of the relationship to the sun. Fruit is natural for the branches because of its relationship to the vine. Likewise, fruit happens when I am abiding. So the fruit of the Spirit, it's more of a fruit inspection test than it is a goal for me to attain. For example, I, I can't sit here and say, today I will exercise self-control to be self-controlled. It just doesn't work that way. The fruit of the Spirit is not what I strive for, it's what flows out. So what, now what? If I ask myself these questions, I ask them to you also. What evidence is there in my life that the Spirit lives in me and through me, actually controls me, my thoughts, my actions, my reactions, my attitudes, my words? The next fruit, the fruit of our lips. Hebrews 13, 15 says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Psalm 50:23 actually combines the idea of sacrificing and a thank offering. Not just thankful for the good, but the all. Psalm 50:23. but giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. May I recommend a book to you? It's called 1,000 Gifts by Ann Voskamp. And the theme of this book is Eucharisto, a lifestyle of thanksgiving. And she suggests in this book the idea of journaling a life of Eucharisto. Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just one quote from Anne's book. The practice of giving thanks, Eucharistio, this is the way we practice the presence of God, stay present to his presence, and it is always a practice of the eyes. We don't have to change what we see, only the way we see. Listen to the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5:18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Psalm 34, 1. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. Some so what, now what questions for us? Am I thankful to God? Does he know it? When was the last time I was thankful for and in a difficult, hard, hurtful situation? What happened next? Or maybe we're in one right now and what is happening now? How can I practice a life of Eucharisto? Maybe you could begin your list. Count your blessings. The inventory will literally never end. G.K. Chesterton said the greatest of poets, poems is an inventory. Become a poet today. Pick up your pen. Start the inventory of the list that will truly never end. The last fruit, the fruit of our deeds, Colossians 1.10. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. The King James Version says being fruitful in every good work. 
some so what, now what questions. How does my lifestyle honor and please God? When and what was the last good work God allowed me to do, and how did he receive the glory for it? Is there a good thing he has planned for me to do on the horizon yet? How am I prepared? Am I ready? The truth is you are prepared. God himself has prepared you, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You not only have all you need, you were actually created for this. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So the question actually becomes, am I ready? Am I willing? Am I watching? Am I listening? Am I obedient? Back to our main scripture in John. Notice the level of fruits. There's no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, which brings us to the different kinds of branches. So let's look at the branches up close like Jesus and the disciples probably did. The first branch, the barren branch, John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. How does God respond to the barren branch? There's this word A-I-R-O. In the King James, New King James, and ESV, the word is translated takes away or taketh away. The NLT and the NIV says cuts off. A clearer translation of the Greek word arrow would actually be take up or lift up. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 14, 20 when the disciples took up the 12 baskets after the feeding of the 5,000. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 27, 32 when Simon took up Christ's cross. In fact, in both the Bible and in Greek literature, arrow never means cut off. Lifts up suggests an image of a vine dresser leaning over to lift up a branch, but why? Listen to what an owner of a large vineyard in Northern California says. New branches have a natural tendency to trail down and grow along the ground, but they don't bear fruit down there. When branches grow along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust, and when it rains, they get muddy and mildewed. The branch becomes sick and useless. So does the vine dresser cut it off and throw it away? No. Back to the California vineyard owner's word. The branch is much too valuable for that. We go through the vineyard with a bucket of water looking for those branches. We lift them up and wash them off. Then we wrap them around the trellis to tie them up and pretty soon they're thriving. When the branches fall into the dirt, God doesn't throw them away or abandon them. He lifts them up, cleans them off, helps them flourish again. He takes whatever necessary measures to correct a wayward branch. This is discipline. How does God respond to the barren branch? Discipline. You can read about this in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 8.5. We see it again in the New Testament in Hebrews 12.5-11. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living. 
for those who are trained in this way. How will I respond to God's discipline? Psalm 51 is an example of a repentant heart. Have mercy on me, wash me. I recognize my rebellion, purify me. And then from the New Testament, we have 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So what now? What questions for all of us? When was the last time God disciplined me? How did I respond and how can I prepare to respond correctly the next time? What other kind of branches might Jesus and the disciples have seen that evening? We talked about the barren branch. What about the beautiful branch? Rampant growth but it produced only a few clusters of grape. Listen to John 15, 2. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. How does God respond to the beautiful branch? Pruning. His plan to prune, it means to thin, to reduce, to cut off. The vine dresser's secret for more is less. So to get more from a grapevine, you have to go against the plant's natural tendency. This is from a gardening report. Because of the grape's tendency to grow so vigorously, a lot of wood must be cut away each year. Grapevines can become so dense that the sun cannot reach into the area where fruit should form. So left to itself, a grape plant will always favor new growth over more grapes. And the result, well, from a distance, it looks really great. But up close, there's an underwhelming harvest. So the vine dresser cuts away unnecessary shoots, no matter how vigorous, because a vineyard's only purpose is grapes. For the Christian, that might be preoccupations and priorities in our lives that, while not necessarily wrong, are keeping us from more of God, more with God, more for God. Warren Wearsby wrote a book called Be Transformed, and he says this, This pruning process is the most important part of the whole enterprise, and the people who do it must be carefully trained, or they can destroy an entire crop. Some vineyards invest two or three years in training the pruner so they know where to cut, how much to cut, and even at what angle to make the cut. The greatest judgment God could bring to a believer would be to let him alone. Let him have his own way. Because God loves us, he prunes us and encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. Did you know that growers prune their vineyards more intensely as the vines age, just in case any of us think we have arrived or ever will arrive? This is a horticultural bulletin. It says this, the vine's ability to produce growth increases each year, but without intensive pruning, the plant weakens and its crop diminishes. Mature branches must be pruned hard to achieve maximum yields. Mature pruning can be thought of as the testing of your faith. You can read about that in James 1, 3, and 4. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. In Psalm 66, verses 10 and 12, you've tested us, O God. You've purified us like silver. Then you put a leader over us. We went through fire and flood, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. The pain of pruning comes now. The fruit comes later. Pruning is for a season. And the quantity and the quality of the future harvest depends on the submission to the vine dresser, even today. So mature pruning is God's way of making Matthew true to us when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks those words to us. 
This kind of pruning goes beyond just rearranging our priorities all the way to the heart of what defines us. Think here of the people we love, the possessions we cling to, the deep sense of personal rights. Every one of these God must rule if we're to bear fruit. One example might be um, the sources of your significance. Think back to Abraham and what God asked him to do with his beloved son, the promised son, Isaac. For Gideon, maybe it was his large army. For Paul, at the end of his life, all that made Paul who he was, his job, his position, his heritage, his pride, even his religion, had been pruned away. And in his final letter, in Philippians 3, 5 through 8, he writes about this. I'm just going to skip forward to verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. How will I respond to God's pruning? You know, I can complain, I can rebel, I can compromise, I can run away, or I can cooperate. Peter described how some Christians were triumphing in the middle of severe testing in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8. So be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead. Even though you have to endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So what now? What questions for all of us? What do I need to let go of that is keeping me from his kingdom purposes? Think commitments, lesser priorities, preoccupations, whatever God's spirit brings to your mind. What is draining precious time and energy from what is most important? Well, we got the barren branch, the beautiful branch, and last we have the bountiful branch. What is God's response and my response abiding together? That means to dwell or reside, to last and endure. God doesn't want me to do more for him. He wants me to be more with him. In Jesus' final remarks in the vineyard, he turned the disciples' attention away from activity altogether. And he says, abide in me and I in you. Within six verses in John 15, Jesus says abide ten times. Jesus knows that he's about to leave his friends, and yet he is saying we must be together. Abide's a command, an imperative. It's not a suggestion or a request. You know, you don't have to command a child to eat dessert. You command someone to do something because it's not going to come naturally. Remember the natural tendency of the vine? So what now? What questions? Am I focused more on doing more for him or being more with him? Think about the meeting place of the vine and the branch. The life force, the sap, is out of sight. So in abiding, what happens on the surface doesn't count nearly as much as what's happening inside. Abiding does begin with visible spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, etc. But we can do these things for years without abiding. Remember the People magazine example. Reading about a person isn't the same thing as knowing the person. So the challenge in abiding is to break through these dutiful activities all the way through to a living, growing, deepening, flourishing relationship with God. Well, how do I spend my time? A couple of abiding principles. Principle number one, to break through to abiding, 
I must deepen the quality of my devoted time with God. Notice I did not say devotional time because that implies the purpose of your time with God is to have devotions. Psalm 42, 1 is the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. In Psalm 27, 4, David, the man after God's own heart, summarizes the one thing. It is God, his very presence. And then David says to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Learn to know God, practically speaking. Set apart the kind of time that will build relationships. Savor God's words to you. Talk and listen to the living God and keep a written, written record of what God is doing in your life. Learn to know God intimately. David here is talking about an intentional, purposeful process. Principle number two, to break through to abiding, I must broaden my devoted, my devoted time, taking it from a morning appointment to an all-day attentiveness to his presence. Don't leave God in the study or beside your favorite chair and go on with life. Brother Lawrence, he was a 17th century Christian who worked in a monastery kitchen. He describes the practice of abiding this way. I do nothing else but abide in his holy presence, and I do this by simple attentiveness and an habitual loving turning of my eyes on him. This I call a wordless and secret conversation between the soul and God, which no longer ends. A couple of misconceptions about abiding. Misconception one, abiding is based on feelings. That's just not true. Communion with God is a relationship. It's not a sensation. Misconception two, we can abide in Jesus without obeying him. You can read this John 15, 10 again. We've already read it twice. Remember, to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him, and to obey him is to live as Jesus did. Abiding carries with it a promise of answered prayer, one of the fruits mentioned earlier. And again, you can look at John 15, 7 and 8. So what now what? What season am I in? How is my branch looking to the vine dresser? You know, if I'm in a season of discipline, the vine dresser is kneeling beside me. He's reaching down and intervening in my life, lifting me up, bringing me back to fruitfulness. If I'm in the season of pruning, the vine dresser is standing right there beside me with the shears. He thoughtfully, expertly, faithfully strips away unwanted shoots. And if I'm in a season of abiding, we are enjoying one another. The huge clusters of grapes are crowding the branch, exactly what he has in mind. Three reminders for all of us branches. First, God's plans for you are unique and specially suited for your success, which is much fruit for his glory ultimately and to bless others as well. Two, it's never too late to begin bearing fruit. And three, you can rest in God's sovereign timing. Submit to the vine dresser. Philippians 1.6, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. The vine dresser is at work with you and with me. Abiding results, two of them are mentioned here in our John 15 passage. Glory to the Father and overflowing joy to his children. We read about these in John 15 verses 8 and 11. Glory to the Father and overflowing joy to his children. You know, while the wor world applauds achievement, God desires companionship. The one thing is not found in doing more. 
It's found by sitting at his feet and abiding. God wants not only to indwell you, he wants to be your dwelling place too, abiding. Max Lucado has such a beautiful way with words in the great house of God. He says this, God wants to be your dwelling place. He has no interest in being a weekend getaway or a Sunday bungalow or a summer cottage. Don't consider using God as a vacation cabin or an eventual retirement home. He wants you under his roof now and always. He wants to be your mailing address, your point of reference. He wants to be your home. Cynthia Held in Becoming a Friend of God says we are as intimate with God as we choose to be. The only limitations of God's presence in our lives are the limits we ourselves set. So what now what? How intimate with God am I choosing to be? Do you know what this is? Some of you have seen it before. This is a courting candle, and it was used back in the 1600s to the 1800s. It was used by the father of the home, and it was placed uh, really to communicate a message to both the daughter and her suitor. You can see you can put different heights of candles in this, and you can also lower or raise the candle. And basically what happens is when the wick gets to the top of the rungs, it's over. It's done. So you can see how the father is communicating to both the daughter and the quarter. So the, the father can choose a, a long candle. The father can set it high or low. Do you know the father also had the right to come in and snuff out the candle? The father could also have additional candles at the ready to replace the candle should it be getting lower than what he desired. You set the courting candle with the Almighty God. Pray with me. Father, I want the tallest candle using all of the rungs. I want nothing or no one to snuff out our candle. And I want a second, a third, a fourth candle and more at the ready. I want to abide with you, in you, and for you. Father, thank you for lifting me up and cleansing me from sin. And thank you for pruning me in all areas of my life. Thank you that you want me to abide with you, that Jesus has made it possible for us to abide together. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies.